me, uh, I have a great episode for you. This last weekend, I just presented at the PATH Region 5 conference, which uh, PATH is the Professional Association of Therapeutic Horsemanship, and I present there often, but I didn't just present on the Stable Moments model this time. I also presented on Measure What Matters. So for those of you who don't know, I got my master's in program evaluation and I have uh, started consulting with that. My consultant business is Cthulhu, so K-O-T-U-L-O.com. But it was really cool to see all these nonprofit program directors and executive directors really interested in measuring what matters because there's so many nonprofits out there that are doing really hard work. Uh, but they don't necessarily evaluate their programs, or if they do, they do it in a way where they say, you know, okay, we've got 20 kids served this year, and next year we're going to serve 25 kids, but they're missing the so what. Like, who cares that you serve five more kids? Are you doing anything? Is anybody actually better off? So if you're interested at all in program evaluation, uh, or you are interested in some uh, evaluative measures to put into your nonprofit and to actually measure not only how much are you doing, but how well are you doing it and is anybody better off, head on over to Cthulhu.com um, so you can check out our services there. You can shoot me an email if you want, Rebecca at Cthulhu.com. Again, that's K-O-T-U-L-O. Um, and I'm, I'm happy to answer any of your questions because it's, I'm really passionate about it and I feel like we have a duty to show the impact that we're making in the lives of these children um, or in the lives of other populations you're serving. And a lot of times people just, they want to know the so what and people get overwhelmed with the data that you need to collect, but it's actually not that difficult if you just put a few things in place in your processes to collect data so that you can report that and demonstrate all the impact that you're actually making. So today's guest is the parenting program director at the Attachment Trauma Network, Ginger Healy. Uh, Ginger received her master's degree in social work and she began practicing as a licensed clinical social worker in 2001. She worked as a social worker in the field of child and family services and hospital trauma for several years until she adopted her son from Romania. Uh, At that point, she started working at the Children's House International Adoption Agency, and she stayed there for 15 years serving as their social services supervisor. And she says that that job taught her so much about attachment and trauma And she was actually awarded in 2016 the Angels in Adoption Award. And that's where she met Julie Beam, who is the executive director of the Attachment Trauma Network. And she was also an awardee. Uh, So they got together and they were so impressed. Uh, Ginger was impressed with uh, the Attachment Trauma Network and that work that she jumped right in and she was able to become their parenting program director. So she's going to tell us a little bit about Attachment Trauma Network, her experience as an adoptive mom, as a social worker, and she is going to tell you about the new podcast coming from Attachment Trauma Network, which is called Regulated and Relational, which I think will be another great podcast and resource for you all to listen to as well. So I'm gonna roll that intro and then you get to meet Ginger. 
I'm Rebecca Britt, and this is the Stable Moments Podcast. I started this podcast to understand from all perspectives how we can help end the foster care crisis. The overwhelming response was we need to support our local community. Unwanted, abandoned, orphaned children are the community's responsibility. We must support, guide, love, invest, raise up generations that will nurture, love, and support their own children to end this crisis. So the purpose of this podcast is to build an army of people that are interested and willing to take responsibility of our foster youth and who are supportive of foster and adoptive families. This is the on-ramp for people who want to get involved but might not know where to start. I want this to be a place where community members feel like they can make a difference, where they feel good enough to make that difference, and believe that they can be a big deal in the life of a child. Thanks for being part of our community, and make sure to join the conversation in the Stable Moments Podcast Facebook group. Together, we can end the foster care crisis. Thank you, Ginger, so much for joining us. I am so excited to have you on. I've been doing, you know, I've done some work with Attachment Trauma Network, um, spoke at the last conference, and been getting to know some of the employees over there and uh, y'all's heart for uh, trauma, foster care, adoption, being a support to parents. So if you could just go ahead and introduce yourself and tell us about how you chose to become a social worker and get involved in this work. Well, thank you for having me. I'm happy to be here. My name is Ginger Healy, and I'm a licensed clinical social worker and have been for a really long time. I don't know if I'm very, I'm good enough at math. That's why I went into social work so I could avoid the math, but it's, we're going on, I think about 25 years. And so, um, it is a part of me. I'm so proud to be a social worker. I just absolutely love the profession and I love the ability to have many different roles within it and the opportunity for change. And so that was one of the reasons I did choose to become a social worker because I do like change and I like, um, I like to learn new things and try out new skills. And sometimes I kind of get bored easily. So that was one of the reasons, but even prior to knowing that about that, that was a part of being a social worker, I was trying to decide my career path. And I had looked into linguistics. I really love language and I love to travel. And that sounded very exciting. And so I started down that path and um, learned a couple of languages and traveled a little bit. But one thing that I also had in the back of my mind as um, a young person was that even first and foremost above a career, I wanted to be a mom. And so I was trying to figure out how to balance a career in linguistics with being a mom. And I struggled with if it was possible because um, where I grew up in a kind of a rural small community, I would have to move and be gone all the time. And so I kind of put the linguistics thing on hold and decided that I also wanted to be an author. And so I uh, started taking those intensive English classes, and I really enjoyed them, but um, I wasn't sure how to make a career out of it or um, be able to kind of support a family out of it, and so I took a, a career test, and it did come up with three possible careers, and one was linguistics, the other was English or being an author, and the third was social work, and I thought, well, 
I'm on the right path. I know my strengths and weaknesses. I've obviously kind of in tune to that. And so let's take a social work class and see um, how that sits. And so I took Mental Health 101 and was absolutely hooked. It just felt right to my core. And so I dove into that and finished my bachelor's degree in that and then uh, realized that I probably needed to go get a master's degree in order to be have the opportunity to be more flexible if I also really wanted to be a mom and um, not work overtime hours for really low pay, mm -hmm. that a master's degree would give me that opportunity to be flexible, to make a higher wage, and to really kind of um, do more what I wanted to do, which was therapy. And so that's kind of how I ended up um, becoming a licensed clinical social worker. And the really cool thing about that is that I use those English skills, those author skills all the time, because you can imagine the paperwork, you know, involved in mm -hmm. social work, the reports. And then also because I had spent, have spent the majority of my career in international adoption, I've used my linguistics background and mm -hmm. I have been able to continue to travel. So unbeknownst to me, I chose a career that included all of those careers that I kind of wanted. And that's been kind of a fun thing to look back on and be really proud of and, um, and to really kind of teach myself to trust my gut and follow those strengths and pursue those things that I really am passionate about so that I can be happy while I'm working at the same time too. That's really cool when you are, you know, if you believe that you're born with a purpose and you have these like little inklings as you're, as you're getting close to time to become an adult, this inkling of like, oh, this is interesting and this is interesting and they all kind of come together as your plan and it must help you feel super aligned to what you're supposed to be doing on this planet. Yeah, I think there comes that moment when you you i love the word align that you use because it does just sit well within you and you know when it doesn't and you know when it does and so to really kind of trust that and sit with that and be present with that is a powerful thing that i think can take us really far in our lives yeah absolutely and just yeah that beautiful gift of being there because we know so many people aren't there they like know they're not aligned right and it's still still exploring what is it that is uh, aligned for me so mm -hmm. that's really cool part of your story so tell us about working for i know you worked for child and family services um before you got into your international adoption work right in in the hospital trauma space yeah so uh prior to starting the master's degree i worked for division of child and family services as a um, child abuse investigator and then while i was attending my master's program for my internship and then thereafter i worked at our hospital as a hospital social worker so i was kind of both doing them simultaneously and they they complemented each other and worked well with each other and they were excellent um, foundational building skills that I learned, but boy, that was a really hard time for me um, 
And I'm so I what I'm saying is I'm glad I did it, but I wouldn't want to do that again. It was hard. Maybe what let's compare it to high school, right? We had to do it. It was good experience. We had to check that box, but I don't want to go back there again. That was some really hard times. You know, it it's a high burnout job to work in child abuse services. It's very necessary. Um, so I applaud those that do it, but for me. It was really draining, and so I didn't stay in that um, in that path very long. I was only there a couple of years, and that's it. Really spurred the decision to go to graduate school because I felt like my choices were limited if I didn't. That I knew I didn't want to be a child abuse investigator for the rest of my career. So uh, graduate school was kind of a way out of that. But I'm still so grateful for what I learned because there were so many important teaching moments and education that was given to me during that time. And the same with the hospital job. I do well in crisis situations. I'm able to be really calm and think straight. And I, um, I do a good job of calming other people in the room, kind of regulating and co-regulating. And so the hospital job was great for me um, in the emergency room when those crises came in. However, it was also draining that when I went home, I, I collapsed a lot because it was kind of a 24-7 job. I would work that day shift, and then I would be on call all night because it was a small rural hospital. So I was there all the time, and it was so it was a high burnout job, but it was because it was a small rural hospital, we were a family and I grew really close to the doctors and the nurses and the support staff. And um, I think we were a powerful force in the community for healing. So I really am grateful for that job too. Though both of those jobs I did before I had children and having children really changed me, changed my perspective. You know, I thought that I knew everything before I had kids. Sure. <laughs> and so now, I think it would be very different going back to those jobs because I had invested everything emotionally, physically into that, those careers. And then uh, once I had kids that, that my priorities shifted, so I needed my career to shift as well. Yeah. I can imagine that that both those jobs gave you a great perspective that you could bring forward because when we do, uh, work with families and we do trauma-informed work, a lot of times we talk about parenting techniques or, you know, things to implement when people may not be in crisis mode. And to, to at least understand that there's kind of a level of where, where you're at, you know, are you in crisis mode? Are you a little bit removed from crisis mode? Are you in a place where you can learn and think and apply um, and having respect for where a family is at in, um, in their path of trauma, I think is a really good perspective. And I, a lot of times I don't know that we stop to ask like, our needs being met? Is there an immediate crisis right now um, before we start giving advice um, in general? Oh, I think you hit the nail on the head. I didn't have, my perspective was probably pretty myopic. It was black and white. I knew what was best. And so I wanted the family to just do that, not even considering what the bigger picture was, what's going on in the home, I had no clue back then really about, um, 
I had learned about attachment and, you know, attachment styles and all of that, but applying that was very different and the same for, you know, developmental trauma. I knew sort of what PTSD was, but I didn't understand what it looked like, what it felt like, what it um, manifested and how to help it. You know, I, I, I knew book things, but I didn't know life things. And, and it's also different for everybody. So um, I still had and still have a long journey to go in learning all I need to do and applying all that I need to apply with knowledge and skills, I think. Well, so tell me how, I know that you said family was totally priority for you. You knew that from a young age and while you were entering your career. So how did you come to choose adoption for yourself? That is a great question. And um, I always say I didn't choose adoption. Adoption chose me because it wasn't, um, we were not a couple that were infertile and um, needed to adopt in order to create our family. We were a young couple and we hadn't gotten pregnant yet um, and we wanted to, but um, we weren't in a desperate rush or anything. We were just, um, you know, taking our time, creating our family, waiting for it to happen as it happened. And I had the opportunity to travel to Romania um, to do a humanitarian trip. And so I knew we were going to an orphanage and going to care for children in the orphanage and um, bring supplies and all those needed things. I loved to travel. I loved to travel internationally. And so it just sounded absolutely fun and amazing. And I do remember my husband saying, um, now don't come home with a child. And, and of course I laughed because that's not how it works. It's not that easy. And that wasn't what I was going for anyway, but I think he knew me and knew how much I loved children and how desperately I wanted to be a mom and knew that I probably wouldn't be able to go and love on all these kiddos and then just come home and resume life as normal. Mm -hmm. He knew that about me more than I knew it about myself. Um, and he was right. So I headed to Romania. This was like 1999, 98. And um, I went to, um, well, I got sick when I arrived. And so I immediately went to the hotel and laid down. It was just a long, hot trip. It was August. It was 100 million degrees. And, you know, when you go there, you take a really long flight and then you take a really long train and then you take a car ride and then you're on um, roads where sometimes you have to take horse and buggy. I'm not exaggerating. Hmm. We were just really in a rural area. And so by the time I arrived, I just was, I felt really sick. And so I went straight to the hotel to lay down, but all my companions went directly to the orphanage. And so when they came back, um, they were excitedly talking about all the kids and I couldn't wait to um, go see them. And my roommate, best friend, she said, oh, there's a child there that I know you're just going to love. And I said, oh, tell me about this child, boy, girl, what do they look like? And she says, oh, let's just see how tomorrow goes and see if I was right. Mm -hmm. 
And so I went to the orphanage the next day and there was the baby room and the toddler room and the older child room. And I was trying to look at all the children and get to know them and find out where I needed to help the most. And um, there was this darling little boy, big brown eyes, long eyelashes. And he came up to me and pulled on my um, shirt and motioned for me to pick him up. So I picked him up and put him on my hip. And then eight hours later, I was still doing a lot of work. And this little boy was still on my hip. <laughs> and at the, I hadn't seen my friend all day long. And she um, came and she goes, Oh, I knew it. I knew it was him that you'd fall in love with. And I said, you've got to be kidding. We just laughed. Anyway, long story short, um, that little boy never left my hip for two weeks. And um, I fell in love with him head over heels. And I think he did the same. But knowing now what we all know, he loved the attention and mm -hmm. he loved being cared for. And he, um, you know, it was very comforting to him. And so uh, I came home and said, you know, guess what? We have a little boy in <laughs> Romania. And he said, no, we don't. Anyway, it took a few months, but we we applied for his adoption. And um, in the meantime, I got pregnant. Wow. It was a difficult pregnancy. And I did travel back and forth to Romania a little bit, but not as much as I wanted to because of the pregnancy. Sure. And then um, even longer story shorter, uh, Romania went through a shift in politics and prime ministers and our adoption case became a, what's known as a pipeline case. And it took three years. Wow. No, it took uh, almost four years. Yeah, it was about three and a half years for it to process. So I had my um, biological son in the meantime and waited for my other son's adoption to process. And we didn't think it would. And one day it, it did. Out of the blue, I got a phone call that said, your adoption is processed. Come get your son. It was finalized in country without us being present. Wow. <laughs> so anyway, I got on a plane and flew over and, and picked him up. And he was five years old, almost five by the time that he finally came home. So I had um, both kids um, very quickly at the same time. And uh, neither spoke English <laughs> very well. <laughs> it was hard. It so oh, anyway, uh, that's a roundabout tale, but um, it, it didn't happen, I would say, in a traditional way, um, but it was all about him. So it wasn't about adoption. It wasn't about international adoption. It was about this child and us truly feeling like he was our son, you know, and, um, you know, he's 23 years old now. Gosh, I love that. I, I uh, so what was it like maintaining that relationship from this little, you know, baby that you feel like was on your hip for two weeks to having to maintain that relationship so distant and while you're having, you're raising your biological child um, in those three, four years that you had to wait? Yeah, it was really, really difficult. Mm. I um, was very naive. I thought that love solved everything. Mm -hmm. And um, I don't know, maybe it was good that it was that I was naive because we just kept pressing forward and having, you know, that strong belief that everything was going to work out and everything was going to be fine. But um, 
obviously physically it was very difficult it was impossible to see him often and the other thing that happened was we were able to <clears throat> excuse me uh, move him from the orphanage into a foster family oh. which was very good for him but what happened as a result of that was that he became very attached to his foster family right which is wonderful. He, he learned what a family was and he was so well cared for. We still keep in contact with them today. We uh, went back to Romania to visit them and they love him continuously, you know, as a son and are so proud of him. Um, but when I finally came to pick him up and bring him home, that was really hard that was devastating for him mm. and for them and for me because i really questioned if i was doing the right thing and he didn't want to come with me he did not know who i was um wow. and he became physically ill you know we were not able mm. to communicate so that ride from the the foster family to the hotel he just threw up the whole way oh and i sobbed the whole way it was so traumatic and the next day i called um the adoption agency and said i think this might be a mistake i think i might be traumatizing him worse you right. know and I, and the big picture seems so far away when you're in crisis and when you're in trauma, it's really difficult to see the big picture. Mm -hmm. And, um, so that was far from my view. And of course there was jet lag and fatigue and I was away from my newborn baby, mm -hmm. which I had, I did not know love like that until I had get given birth to this little boy and held him in my arms like that was a different new deep kind of love that i had never experienced and so to be parted from him was very painful and then to come pick up a child who doesn't want you doesn't need you you know that was oh boy it was just so super painful for everybody and and you didn't have any support, did you, to, to, like, to say, to be like, what, are we doing the right thing? Like, what are we doing? What, you know, yeah. why, but you didn't, I mean, you were his parents legally and, right? Like, yeah, exactly. We did have support. The adoption agency was wonderful in that they, you know, explained everything, how things were legally. Yes, we were his legal parents and guardians, and it was full and final. And that in the big picture, um, this this would be what was best for him. But so we we did have that support, but we didn't have. This was also, you know, twenty years ago. We know so much more now than we did back then, and I don't know. Well. First of all, I think I thought I knew everything because I was a social worker right, and of course I had given births and I had met this little boy and I had loved him and had known him for many years. And so nobody could have talked me out of it. Um, and, and that's, you know, that's a good thing, but 
I, nobody could have also, I wasn't humble enough to really know what I needed to know and what I didn't know. Mm. I, there was so much I didn't know that I could have maybe helped in his transition. And, um, you know, a lot of it is a blur because it was truly traumatic for me and for this little guy. And we just survived it. It was, and then I, you know, came home to my little baby as well. And we had other things going on at the time. We were moving into a new home and my husband, his job um, was transitioning and he was working like, I don't even know, 12, 15 hour days. So he was gone a lot. Like it was this perfect storm of mm, horrible transitioning. But as I've worked with adoptive families through the years, there's really no easy, sure. easy way to go through it. I have a lot of advice for people, but I don't know that it, it was just something we just had to survive and go through. But oh my goodness, it was probably the most difficult thing I've ever gone through. And that I'm sure for him as well, I know for him as well. And oh. It was hard. I'm almost having PTSD talking about it. I I imagine. I mean, yeah, it, the the picture you paint is it's heart wrenching for me. Tell me, I just have to know when did you start to feel like okay, we're making some headway, and like he's getting a little bit more comfortable here, and we're getting into a rhythm. Yeah, that's a good question. I definitely know. I remember very clearly that almost at the year mark, pretty much the 11, 12 month mark, there was this sigh of um, relief in our home. Like it wasn't as tense. It wasn't as difficult. He was having less, um, Oh, I can't believe I just got the word night terrors. He would have mm. horrific night terrors that would wake us up in the night. Um, he would, I had him sleep in our bed or on the floor next to us. Um, and so his sleep got better. So then my sleep got better, things like mm -hmm. that. I remember that at the, at the month, at the year mark. Um, of course, not everything, but I just remember for sure knowing that my legs were steadier under me and that I was happier and getting through the day better and not questioning myself as much, you know, just seeing overall improvement in so many areas. That's an incredible, incredible story. I, I love it. I love how it came about. Um, I understand that there's pain in there. Um, but Oh, it, it speaks so much to what so many adoptive parents experience and the questions and the, I mean, even the time, the time you had to wait, the, a year so, sounds like a lot I, to um, feel like you're breathing a sigh of relief. Um, and I know a lot of people can relate to the perfect storm where it just seemed like you had so much going on at, what at one time. Yeah. When, when did you learn about developmental trauma in in the way where you were like oh okay like this is the thing that I need to be looking into when did you like the light bulb really went on like this is what developmental trauma is or this is what complex trauma is yeah I love that question because 
even though like I was totally immersed in it in my personal life and in my work life, I still feel like I was sort of late to the game. It really wasn't until I read um, The Body Keeps the Score by Dr. Bessel van der Kolk that I went, oh my gosh, this is it. Like I knew what PTSD was, but it wasn't exactly that. And I knew what attachment difficulties were, but like it didn't all come together full circle, check all the boxes until I read that book. And um, it was like, where have you been all my life? I was so grateful for that book. It was so affirming and validating. And then once I read that book, like all the doors and windows opened to all these other authors mm -hmm. and scientists and researchers and psychologists, you know, that I have just gobbled up, devoured every single thing that I can get my hands on by all these amazing um, therapists that are in this field. I just can't get enough of it. And that's why I'm just so content where I am in my job right now, because it just everything that comes out um, of the neuroscience these days just rings true where before I felt like I was searching and finding nuggets of truth here and there, but I would go to my pediatrician and um, sometimes I would get a blank stare or I would go to a therapist, a play therapist. We were working so hard on attachment and there was a lot of good things that we did. We really truly tried everything we could get our hands on as far as modalities and therapies and education and resources. I mean, I almost overdid it. I was so desperate to help this little boy heal and to help me become a, a better parent in helping him heal that I tried everything that I could find. And there was so much good in everything, but it was all missing something. And so it wasn't really until like 2014, 2015, when I read that and went, oh, here we go, finally. Um, and that's when I think I was able to do better as a parent and do better personally. I didn't realize how much I was, you know, suffering just me personally through all mm -hmm. of this trauma and it just changed everything. I'm not kidding. I, it just, everything in my life kind of shifted after that. Yeah. It's, it's incredible. The validation and healing and everything that can happen when you go like, this is it. This is what I've been longing for. It all makes sense. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So how did you get connected with Attachment Trauma Network? So back in, well, okay, let's see. I had been working as the social service director for Children's House International, which is an international adoption agency. I had been working there for, well, 15, 15 years in total. And um, throughout that whole um work experience with them, I was constantly looking for resources and support for all these um, adoptive parents who were going through what I was going through. And I just felt like I could never find enough help for them. And uh, so while I was searching for 
resources, I came across the attachment and trauma network and was, you know, blown away by, I just loved that they were moms too, who mm. were walking the walk and talking the talk and, um, that they were, they got it. They totally understood, um, and made me feel like I wasn't crazy. And so I started using them as a resource for myself and for other adoptive parents I was working with. And then in 2016, um, I was given an award in Washington, DC for angels in adoption and every state in the United States chooses a winner each year. And so I was chosen for the state of Utah and Julie Beam, who's the executive director for the Attachment and Trauma Network, she was chosen for her state. And so we met face to face and it was just so awesome to finally put a face to a name. And your Angels in Adoption is really cool. It's, it's just fun. You, you go for like a whole week and you get to know all the other awardees and you go to these ceremonies and these um, networking luncheons and dinners and you get to go on tours of Washington, D.C. It's just a, a fantastic program. And so I, I, get, I got to really spend the whole week with Julie and we, we just became friends. I got to know her as a mom and, um, you know, just fell in love with her. And so that bond really grew. And then in 2018, um, you know, I was working in the field of international adoption and adoptions really started to slow down for many reasons, but my caseload started um, really dwindling. And I had been in it long enough, at least in my mind, you know, 15 years that I thought, gosh, maybe a change is in order. And I wasn't sure what that change would be. I had also started working um, as a therapist for an elementary school in my town, and I loved it. Um, and I got to, I had 45 kids that I got to do therapy with and um, was really enjoying that. And something came across my email one day from the Attachment and Trauma Network um, I can't remember what it was, but it just spurred this. Oh my gosh, I wonder how Julie is. I miss Julie. I need to call her. And so I called her up and I said, we just started connecting. And I said, I'm kind of going through a career change. I'm not doing adoptions as much anymore. And um, what are you up to? And she said, oh, this is so interesting because I was just talking about you. Your nose must have been itching, but Mm -hmm. looking for a parent program director and we had been thinking about you and I said oh that's crazy there's no way I could do that I didn't think I was capable of that and she said well I'll think <laughs> about it anyway long story short she after months and months convinced me to give it a go and um, I've been there ever since and I can't imagine being anyplace else I'm just absolutely loving this role that I'm in now so let us know what your role is now. And just for those who don't know, uh, tell us about what the Attachment and Trauma Network is and, and what resources they have. Yeah, so I am the parent program director. The Attachment and Trauma Network is a nonprofit agency that has been around for over 25 years. And uh, we provide support and education, resources, advocacy, to um, families that have been impacted by trauma. And the agents, the 
attachment and trauma network kind of has two sides, the school side and the parent side. So the school side um, does an amazing, huge conference uh, once a year over um, Martin Luther King holiday weekend, where teachers and educators in any role, you know, our professionals and administrators, anyone involved in the education system can come and network and uh, get some trauma-informed education. And that's what you had alluded to. We had you come and speak. Um, and it's just such a great experience. It's just growing every year. So that's a big part of the education piece. Another part of it is, you know, professional development and providing support to schools and education to schools. So that's the school side. On the other side is this um, parent, and when I say parent, I mean caregiver, anyone who takes care mm -hmm. of a child, you know, foster parent, grandparent, even a residential treatment center. There are so many, you know, op options and opportunities um, for caregivers to provide that support. And so that's, I'm over that program. So I get to provide a lot of education. I do webinars. I go speak publicly. I go at, speak at conferences or in schools or just parent groups. Um, and we have our podcast, which you mentioned, and we have, um, I do a lot of just ongoing support. We have a support group. I do a lot of referrals um, because I, I can't provide therapy one-on-one -on -one to every member. I wish I could, but I certainly can't. So I find great um, trauma-informed therapists to refer out to. We have a directory that um, has trauma-informed professionals in it that I can use to refer out and just kind of do whatever needs to be done. I love to help on the school side as well. The overarching theme just being supporting and advocating and educating families and getting them the resources they need in order to navigate um, the environment that they find themselves in with these children who are impacted by trauma. And I've been in this game long enough now to know that when I say children, <laughs> I these kids grow up, right? Like all right. these little darling infants that I helped these families adopt, they are now young adults and they still need a lot of support and education. Absolutely. And so, you know, children is a word. Maybe more. Yeah. Oh, listen, I can also <laughs> come at that from the parent view where my kids now are entering young adulthood and adulthood and oh yeah, though that need for support and education and resources never goes away. Absolutely. So, so tell us about the podcast. I know that that's new and it's a resource. And I know obviously people that are listening to this are into podcasts. So tell us about the podcast uh, and who the intended listener is. And um, I'll make sure to definitely link to it and link to uh, Attachment and Trauma Network as well and those resources for anybody listening. But, but let us know about the podcast. Yeah, I am so excited to talk about the podcast. It's called Regulated and Relational, and we air our episodes every couple of weeks. And so, so far we have aired uh, five episodes and we have recorded about 12. So they're, they're upcoming, but we hit all kinds of topics in the trauma-informed world. So we kind of started out talking about what is trauma and really defining it. And we talked about resilience 
Then we broke down what it is to be regulated, uh, what it means to be relational. We also are going to be talking about collective trauma as we move through this pandemic. And then as the fall comes up here, we have great um, podcasts about what trauma looks like at school, community support, special education resources, rewards and punishments, why they don't work. And then, you know, in, late in the fall, we're going to dive into shame and the window of tolerance. So this podcast, originally, I think we wanted to target, you know, those parents and caregivers who are caring for children impacted by trauma. But what we're realizing and really happy to, um, you know, invite and welcome into our listenership is that it really is for everybody because especially now after we've gone through this pandemic, everyone has some level of trauma that they've experienced. And many people in this life, it's hard to go through this life unscathed, you know, mm. without the challenges and trials that it comes along with. And so we like to give practical um, experience and education regarding how to navigate through trials and challenges, whether it be in your home right now with your children or something that happened in your past or something that's going on at your work. It, it really kind of fits everybody, but we are a little bit niche in our, in our direction of talking about becoming more trauma-informed and what that looks like. I absolutely love that it's for everyone because our podcast is for everyone and we try to be kind of the bridge between just the community members that want to get involved and want to know more and want to help, but they might not be foster adoptive parents. They might not be in, in that world at all. They might just want to mentor a kid or learn more about it. Um, so sounds like your podcast is a great place for them to get more information about that what what's your biggest piece of advice and we can end on this what's your biggest piece of advice for community members that are looking to support foster and adoptive families maybe ones that that aren't uh aren't foster adoptive families themselves but just the community at large oh you know i love that this is even a question because as um, a mom and a professional who has dealt, you know, with trauma in the home and um, at work, we need you. We really need um, that support. And so I think just remaining open to know that you are needed and your help is welcomed is really awesome. I, I would hope that community members would have an air about them of being non-judgmental. I will tell you, I already know, and my families already know that things don't look good and don't look pretty and that we need help and that we're a mess. We, <laughs> we don't need to be told that because we already know it. And, and we have to be careful because if we know it too much, we can kind of live in that shame and mm. that's not healthy. And we don't want that. We're working so hard to pull ourselves out of that shame for ourselves and for our children and to heal. And so if someone wants to help us, then just being there and holding that presence and holding that space and being safe is what we need because we got all the advice we can take. We've, we've read all the books. We've heard all the advice. 
What we need even more than that is safety. And when I say safety, of course I mean physical safety, but I mean emotional safety. We need a safe place to vent and to go to when things are so difficult that we don't think we can make it one more minute. We just need somebody who can say, I gotcha, I'm here. Whatever comes out of your mouth, I'm not gonna judge. Uh, what do you need? And you know, maybe bring a meal or maybe just affirm and validate or give a hug. I know that you want to fix things because we all do, but I think sometimes what it looks like is just saying nothing and being a safe sounding board because we are just so tired. It is so hard to explain to someone the level of exhaustion and burnout and fatigue that we deal with on a daily basis. And so I just really appreciate friends and community members who just look at me and give me that look like, girl, you know, you're doing great. Keep going. I gotcha. Come have a hug. And then what else do you need? Like that's enough for me just to know that I'm not alone and that I'm safe. Well said. That is some of the best advice out there to just be, just be there for someone. And you don't have to feel like you need to know what to do. Like you can just be there and say, what do you need? I'm here. Um, It seems so simple, right? Right. I think people really want uh, to know exactly what to do or what to say. And I don't have that answer, but a lot of times saying nothing is just as powerful, if not more powerful. Absolutely. I, I, I love that. I absolutely love that. I'm pulling it out for a sound bite. <laughs> okay. Well, this has been really, really, really great. I know that our community is going to love this and love your podcast even more, having great content that they can go on a different platform um, in a different format and be able to learn even more about how to support foster and adoptive families in their community. So thank you so much, Ginger. This has been great. Thank you for spending time with us. Oh, thank you so much for having me. And I echo back everything that you're doing as well. I just think we can't have enough community and support for each other. So you're doing the work too. And I, I love it. Right, guys go check out ginger on regulated and relational i think this is a great time to look at that podcast and go and binge the first six episodes that they have out now um, it's great foundational stuff like what is trauma um talking about resilience why relational why regulated so these are kind of some of the building blocks and i think this would be a great time to go and binge those first six episodes and then subscribe to it so that you can see when they're coming out with new stuff i will link it in the show notes and i will see you guys next month